On today's episode, we're talking about how to use data to inform your customer experience and your employee experience. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. Our guest today is Jill Marchick, the Vice President of Customer Insights and Engagement for the Indiana Pacers. I wanted to have Jill on the podcast because of the great work she and her team conducted with a customer survey to find out how exactly Pacers fans are feeling right now, and specifically how they are feeling about returning to Bankers Life Fieldhouse. It was a really well-structured, intentional survey that is going to lead to tons of actionable insights as to how the Pacers can best prepare for events post-COVID-19. Jill and I first met on a Zoom call where we discussed the survey, and the way she spoke about understanding the customer really caused some new light bulbs to go off in my head. So I invited her to be on the show. At the time of this interview, this is a new role for her, literally only six weeks on the job. And as you hear Jill talk, it may surprise you that this is her first role with a sports team. Prior to the Pacers, Jill was the Vice President of Consumer Insights at Aramark. Before Aramark, she held senior roles at some of the biggest names in the consumer packaged goods industry. She's led Consumer Insight teams at the Hershey Company, at Starbucks, at Warner Brothers, Nestle, and McDonald's. And if you're new to this show, you know that we love identifying principles and best practices from other industries that we can apply to sports and entertainment and live events. So obviously, that makes Jill a perfect guest for Flip the Switch. This is going to be an especially relevant episode for you if your organization is considering putting out a survey or gathering information in another way on how your customers feel about your organization right now, and especially how they feel about returning to events. And it's even more important that you listen if you're just feeling lost about what to do once you actually collect that data and how to put action to the numbers. Well, without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Jill Marchick. All right, Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to jump in here with you because we first got connected, I don't know, two weeks ago now. It has been, um, yeah. And uh, it was on a, a call with a bunch of other leaders in college athletics to talk about what you and the Pacers are doing right now to really kind of lead the industry in terms of getting an idea of how your customers and how your fans are feeling about returning to play and coming back to the arena. Um, and I thought it was a great look into how you guys are gauging how you're going to make decisions from an operations perspective. So give us a little bit of insight as to how you guys came up with this survey um, and your approach to collecting this information from customers. Well, first off, um, I joined uh, Pacer Sports Entertainment uh, six weeks ago. So in my fourth week, uh, as I moved from Philadelphia to Indianapolis uh, amid the stay-at-home order, um, and like living and breathing, you know, of what's going on and how consumers are changing, I went to our leadership at the Pacers and said, you know, I think it's really important that we talk to our fans. We need to understand what's important to them. What's going on in their mindset and kind of thinking ahead of what changes we have to make. 
So they were very supportive. So I, I grabbed together a cross-functional team. Since I'm new to the Pacers, I needed to know who else I could talk to and who else I could really figure out what the right plan of action was. So what we did is uh, develop that cross-functional team, and I put together the plan, which is related into two different parts. Um, first part being, you know, we did a quantitative survey with our uh, season ticket holders, single ticket buyers, uh, concert goers, family event goers, to really understand really where where is their mindset? You know, how does coming back um, to Bankers Life Fieldhouse and coming back to a Pacers or a concert, where does that fit versus going like to a grocery store, going to the mall, um, going to the Indy 500 or going to a baseball game? And how soon are they willing to come back? And then what major concerns do they have? So we had a wonderful response rate for that. And then the second part was we used that tool to recruit for Zoom focus groups. So what we wanted to do wow. is <laughs> exactly you have to do what people are at today, and that is Zoom focus groups. And we really wanted to understand the whys behind the survey data and really walk through the whole fan journey from when you're parking your car at Bankers Life Fieldhouse to then when you're getting back into your car car again after leaving the event. What, if any, are their concerns when you think about every action from, you know, going through and opening the door to going through security, to walking to your seat, to buying food and beverage, really understanding what all their concerns are. And then we just completed that work last week. We've synthesized all the results. Now we're breaking up into different teams and brainstorming. What do mm. we need to make changes on to really make sure that the fans feel comfortable again? And then because consumers are changing so quickly, because we still don't know what's going to happen at the end of the day, um, we feel that we're going to go back and retest again once we come up with new ideas, kind of understand pre versus post. Do any of the changes we make make a difference? And also it's important to really keep track of what's important to our fans to make sure we're delivering what's important to them. I've got like 10 questions at least, and I'm sure that's just going to spur more questions. So the first thing that stood out, to, I'm going to ask him in order. So the, the first thing that stood out to me is you somehow convinced senior leadership, having only been on board for weeks to somehow quickly get a survey implemented within days, it almost seems like. Um, I think a lot of organizations are much, much slower to move. So one, kudos to you for that. Um, were there any any tips or tricks that you use? You're used to presenting data and these kind of recommendations to C-suite people, but I guess give, give us a little bit of insight there to anybody who thinks a survey is a good idea but doesn't know how to pitch that to their bosses. Well, you know, I've been in the industry for over 20 years. Um, I've, I have such a passion for understanding consumer behavior. And I was very fortunate um, that the leadership at the Pacers really understand the needs for that. So what I did is I put together a business case. Why do we need to do this? What are the objectives? Why are we doing this? What are, what's the long-term plan of how to utilize the information? And I think it's important to have that plan. And then making sure you take everybody along the journey, make sure everybody reviews the questionnaire and feel comfortable, making sure they review the discussion guide. And it's really about putting together a plan and making sure you're getting that collaborative viewpoint. I think collaboration is key. Whenever you're an isolationist, things don't happen <laughs> as well as they should. So it's about bringing, it's a team effort and bringing people along on that journey. 
It's, it's funny you say that because I, I agree on from putting together a business case. I think a lot of times ideas, good ideas fail because of they're not pitched internally the right way. And if you don't have a clear purpose process payoff, a clear why as to why you're pitching something and what the business case for it is, it, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. Uh, and I mean, we, we put to, people, people laugh at us when we're working with clients because we put together decks for everything or creative briefs for everything so that it really clearly outlines it. But uh, it's, a, it's a great tip for anybody looking to pursue doing a survey internally. Um, my, my next question was going to be this cross-functional team that you put together. Who was on that cross-functional yeah. team? It was not just you putting this whole survey together by yourself, right? Who all else, what other departments were involved in, in creating the questions? Right. So, of course, I had to start with my own team. You know, since I'm so new, um, I this is my first sports drill job. Um, I've always been in retail and consumer packaged goods. So, again, the lingo had to get down. So, uh, really leaned on a very strong team that I have at the Pacers. Um, and then um, it was um, our marketing team, our customer, our um, game engagement team. It was facilities. You know, so it was really a wide variety of people that you know touch this um, game operations so all different groups that really came together and then we were meeting like um, because we wanted to get into the field so quickly we were meeting quite frequently so every you know for the first um, two weeks we're meeting you know a couple times a week just to get everybody engaged and making sure we got the survey as strong as possible did you have an internal deadline for that you set before you started the questionnaire of saying, hey, we got to have all questions in by X date? Did you guys have something like that? In the beginning, no. In the beginning, it was more like I just felt like we needed to get this done. And then it was like, we need to get this done. So a lot of people at the organization are like, OK, we need we need to get this done as quickly as possible because we need time. So what's the time we need to make sure that we're delivering it in a way that um, you know, is as actionable because your insights are only as good as the actionability of them. And I think, you know, as we don't know when things are going to fully get back again, um, it's important that we have enough time to make changes. Because when you think about making changes to arena, it's going to take some time, right? So to make sure we have enough time to do it properly so people can trust and feel safe at the field house again. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, I feel like sometimes with an initiative like this, it can drag on because people want to make it perfect. And sometimes speed is more important than perfection when it comes to this kind of stuff. 100% agree. It's, you know, you try to do the best you can, but you always are going to miss something and nothing right. is, if we were in perfection, the world would be a different place, right? So it's all about getting the insights right um, as much as possible. And I never believe, you know, insights are to help guide decision-making, not to be, you know, black or white. Um, I'm not one of those market researchers that are very black and white. I think you use it to guide decision-making and that's really the role of the insights. Was there any concern when you guys pushed this out that, hey, this might rile up our fans because, um, you know, if, if we if we put in there, how comfortable are you returning to games in October or cashless um, cashless touch points at the concession stands? Were you concerned with riling up the fans that this was something that we definitely were going to do? I mean, how did you guys approach that fear of of what the fans were going to think about it? So we did have that discussion, you know, is it, is it the right time? 
So to have those conversations and um, we did not give any timelines for anything because we still don't know the timelines. So what on the quantitative study, it was more about more like, are you ready to, when are you willing to come back in terms of immediately once the government and all the, you know, different agencies saying it's okay again. But one of the interesting things that came out was that we got a lot, we had open and open end at the very end. So, you know, what other thoughts do you have for Pace for Sports Entertainment? And we had a lot of people that wrote in as thank you for writing the survey. We appreciate the fact that you're having, you're seeking our opinion, you're reaching out to us because they miss us. You know, they, you know, the one thing we hear over and over again, they love the Pacers and they love basketball and they miss the NBA. So this is a great way, you know, we had a high, high response rate. And why is that? Because people have more time to take surveys now than ever before. People are responding to it. But what's really important is the survey was very targeted and less than seven minutes. You can't have a 20 minute survey. People don't have the attention span as you're going to get bad information. It's being respectful of their time, making sure you're answering the questions in the right way. And then when we did the qualitative research in the focus groups, we had over 600 people requesting to be in our groups, which was just like amazing. What a blessing. Yeah, it really was. It was really exciting. And uh, we recruited people who were a little tentative about coming back. People that were willing to come back tomorrow, you know, we weren't going to learn as much from. So we wanted to talk to people that, you know, had some, you know, had some concerns. And, you know, I, in all of my years of doing research, I've never gotten thank you notes before. So, um, thank you emails, I should say. Um, and saying how much would they appreciated it. And I, you know, they were just so involved and so engaged. And I just think that it's really important to stay close to your fans. They want to provide input and they have great input to give. Um, and I think you take that input along with all the, you know, your back to your cross-functional teams to really develop what is the right thing um, for the organization, for the consumer and fan, and making sure, you know, it makes sense from a business standpoint as well. I love it. Yeah. And I, we'll have to touch base like a year from now to see if my, my uh, hypothesis that sports fans are much more willing to participate in things like this than maybe a CPG uh, perspective, because there's just more emotional attachment. Well, there's definitely more emotional attachment. I have worked for other brands with very strong emotional attachment before I, my experience is at Starbucks, which has very strong emotional attachment. Um, but I would say the fact that um, overall, the whole market research industry is seeing where people are taking surveys at a higher level. Um, I think people need escapism and, you yeah. know, you could be working or you're, you're with your kids and, you know, helping them with e-learning and everybody needs a little bit of a mental break. And anything that you're emotionally attached to, I have a very good friend of mine who is um, a um, ethnographer, and she is saying that like people are willing to participate in studies all the time. Where normally for premium brands, they won't do anything for less than you know, you know, a lot of money, and now you can get them for much less because people want diversion now, and they want to think back to a good time, like going to a basketball game, and that's what gets people excited today and you know there's i really do believe people are very hopeful that they're going to get back soon and they want to and so you know even if they have to watch it on tv they're they're excited they just want basketball again i'm certainly ready for it to be back um 
One another thing I, I want to hit on regarding the survey is something that you you told me and I didn't think about uh, when we were talking about the survey the first time, and and that is there have been a lot of national surveys that have gone out, um, and you very easily might be tempted if you're listening to message Jill and say, hey, can you just share those results and we'll use those results to gauge our, our basis. But what we talked about is every organization, even if they're in Indiana, are gonna have different trust levels with that organization. So that's why it's really important to run your own survey get a, your pulse with your own customers, right? I mean, tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, that's that's completely true. So one of the things, and I, I know when we were, we were talking the other day with that group, is that it's really important to talk to your own fan base. So, for example, if you're living in Indianapolis or living in Indiana, the way you perceive things is very different. I grew up in Northern California and lived in Los Angeles for a lot of years, and let me tell you, it's very different than Indiana, <laughs> or, or I guess most recently came from, from Philadelphia. Philadelphia. So um, while you see there's a lot of great work that's going on in the market research industry on national trends and, and national polls, but you still have to talk to people in who is your consumers or your fan base because the numbers can be very different. And we saw that in our results in terms of, um, you know, willingness to return where it's a much higher level with our fan base than when you look at it on a national level. Interesting. When you did the focus groups to kind of get that qualitative data from the quantitative, what were some of those reasons why they were saying they were more willing to return? Well, one of the number one reason is they trust the Pacers organization. So they feel that, um, you know, when they when, when the Pacers played the last game um, before uh, the stay-at-home order, you know, they felt that the Pacers handled it really well. So they trust mm. and, you know, they really have a passion that, you know, that the Pacers are going to treat them well. So that's one of the reasons why they're willing to come back, you know, fairly soon. But overall, what they're mostly, you know, when you think about a lot of people want to come back immediately, but there are opportunities for them to feel safe in terms of social distancing. You know, how do you make sure, you know, in the pain points of when you're walking into an arena or exiting that there's not so many people? What steps are going to be made mm -hmm. in terms of PPE? You know, those are a lot of the questions. What changes are going to be made from food and beverage standpoint? All of those elements of safety need to be relooked at and decided, you know, what changes have to be made to make people feel safe and comfortable again. One of the other things that we were really probing on is who do you trust today? You know, there's a lot of information. There's so much in social media. Who do you trust? And when we talk to our fans, it really came down to, you know, I'm talking to my friends who are doctors, nurses in the medical community by far in the way is who they trusted the most. And then um, secondarily was the governor of Indiana. Um, mm. And they felt that um, he has handled it very, very well. Um, and that is who they're looking to. And uh, I would emphasize more on medical, but the governor was very close second. So something like that, and feel free to answer at this one as you can. So when somebody says that they're really listening to their own personal medical sources or the governor of Indiana, how does that inform your decision to your future decision as to how to utilize those sources to con convey to your fans that this is a safe place? How do you think about utilizing those those sources once you get that information? 
Well, that's a lot of the conversation. You know, we just actually, I just reviewed all the meetings with our leadership team yesterday afternoon. So those are things we're just working through right now. I think yeah. those are a lot of great discussions that need to be had because, you know, nowadays, you know, when I first started off doing marker research, you know, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have social media. Right, right. So, you know, things took a lot longer to, you know, happen. So now with all this, um, overload of information, you know, people are just so confused. So you just have to, you know, you know, help people understand what your journey is. And the really key thing we also heard from them, the fans is all about communication. They want to be made aware, you know, what are the changes we're making? They want it to be where they can hear it and hear it from all different sources from, you know, news media, social media, emails, everything you can think about, but they need to, to have that mental safety to come back again and be mentally prepared to come back. We need to take it on the journey earlier to, to, to have them ready mentally to come back again as well. Hmm. Interesting. Were there any, were there any other things that came out of the focus groups that maybe surprised you? I, you know, since again, six weeks in with Pacer Sports, <laughs> maybe uh, everything surprised you. <laughs> um, well, not everything surprised me, but the one thing I was just super excited about because I know I came here because of the people, and it just showcased to me that I personally made the right decision coming here because the love and trust that people have for the Pacers really came across, and how much you know, you know, devoted they are and trust whatever, uh, whatever we do. I would say number one. Number two was, I would say the fact that, you know, they want to come back, but we just need to figure out how to make them feel safe again. And I think that is, that's the biggest issue right now is people just don't feel safe. And it's like, we need to, you know, I always like to say that, you know, why is comfort food so popular right now? Uh, going back to my days of working in consumer packaged goods. And you know, it's like you need that warm blanket when you come yeah. to Bankers Life Fieldhouse. It's like, how can you make people feel comfortable and nurtured when they're in our environment? It's interesting. I mean, this is this is kind of my take on it. I know this is not everyone's take, but and right now that's all anybody has is takes because nobody's ever actually lived through a pandemic like this before and then tried to run a, a, a sports and entertainment event the next day. Um, but but I, I do believe that perception is almost more powerful than reality right mm -hmm. now in terms of making people feel safe. Because realistically, from an operations perspective, I don't think it's realistic that you can truly have complete social distancing through every touch point in the journey at an event, even if you're at 25% capacity, right? Just look at bathrooms and it, it's going to be hard to do. But I think if, if a customer feel or a fan feels like you're taking all the necessary steps that you're, if you, if you convey to them that your safety is the number one priority from a customer experience perspective in a multitude of touch points, you're going to overcome that perception and ultimately get fans back. I, that's my take. I, I do agree with you. And I also think when you were speaking, it just reminded me of something of what a couple of the respondents were saying to us. And they said, it's all about, you know, it's, it's my personal, uh, I have the right to do things the way I want to do it in terms of it's my personal accountability mm. is what's really important to them. And, you know, so they're going to take the necessary precautions, you know, as I remember one person said, 
I'm going to wear a face mask everywhere in the arena. But when I get to my seat is where I'd like to take it off. You know, so I think that's where people are going to make some trade-offs and be more comfortable. And I think those are things we have to, you know, we'll have to see what happens with that. But I do believe the masks are going to be the new fashion statement, so to speak. Um, oh, yeah, I agree. Um, I think you'll take it off when you, you know, when you're drinking your beer or, eat, or having some uh, some food. But I think overall, uh, you know, people are going to be wearing masks for a period of time. Like, you know, I just... My mask drawer ready. Exactly. Hey, I I was in Asia during SARS, uh, so wow. uh, and I went through where you uh, people wore masks and you had your temperature taken every day before you went to the, uh, the office in Singapore. Uh, really? So I've lived through that part. I mean, this is much worse, obviously, but um, I do think there's going to be societal changes. One of the pieces of analysis that we did do is we looked at you know there isn't anything analogous to COVID-19, except for 9-11. So we worked with um, this uh, boutique firm out of New York called Spark. And what we did is looked at how long did it take things to get back to normal again from 9-11? What changes happened? And then compare it to COVID-19 and what we need to do. And when you look at it, you know, the, what's the one thing, if, if those of you remember, is that when uh, President Bush threw out throughout the ball the World Series. So at the baseball game, I should say. And um, so those are things that showed normalcy. What is normalcy equals sports? And that's what people yep. want. But who would have thought that taking off your shoes at the TSA, you know, at the airport was going to become a norm. We all got used to it. So there are going to be changes as a society that we're going to get used to again. Yeah. And uh, so Frank Sapovitz, who used to run the Super Bowl and all NFL events, um, he and I were talking about it earlier this week, and he said, you know, when you first, when 9-11 first happened, everybody was like, get to the airport four hours prior. And they made you take out every item from your bag. But eventually they got it down to an efficient uh, process that was actually sustainable, that people got used to. Um, and I think he, he, he likened it to, he thinks it'll be the, some of the same things here. At first, it'll be a, a heavy pendulum swing to the far to the far whatever end, um, but it'll get better as it goes on. Well, this is customer experience is not the only thing you're focused on, Jill, with the Pacers organization right now, right? You're, you're starting to look at some of the, how do you apply data to the employee experience as well? Is that right? Right. Well, as part of getting the fans back, you know, we have employees as well. And so one of the things that we have done is an employee survey to kind of understand how the Pacers organization is doing over, um, you know, through COVID-19. Uh, one of the, uh, as well as, you know, what are people's preparedness to coming back to work and what do we need to change? Um, so we had, you know, over close to 90% of all employees completed the survey, which is fabulous. Wow. And um, I would have to say, you know, um, I've worked for some very large companies and I have to say the numbers that I saw from our employee survey were some of the strongest I've ever seen in terms of um, the way people and the employees rate the organization and how we've handled the COVID-19 crisis. So one of um, the organization leadership has a town hall every Wednesday where everybody is, you know, on Zoom. And we have uh, every night we get an email update. Um, and so those things are making a difference. And it's important to have 
you know, you need to have the employee viewpoint because if you don't have engaged employees, you know, you're going to have a problem when you bring back fans. So it's important to look at the employee point of view, your fan point of view, as well as, you know, what's on the mindset of leadership and, you know, yeah. merging the three together to develop what is the right programs and what changes, fundamental changes have to happen. Um, most recently, um, I worked at Aramark and one of the things that I worked on was workplace trends. Um, so looking hmm. at what's important from a workplace standpoint and what you see in overall is you've got leadership always has one viewpoint. Employees sometimes have a different viewpoint, but how do you find that common ground uh, to make sure that you really have, you know, that atmosphere where people all, you know, want to work together. Um, Pre-COVID, you know, is all about, you know, recruitment and retaining employees. You know, that's going to be changing too, you know, but it's important to always keep up and making sure what's important to your employees as well, because you want strong engagement. And when you think about, you know, five generations in the workforce now, um, you know, different needs, you know, this is something that's really hit hard to the younger generations, uh, the Gen Zs and millennials. But it's really important to figure out, you know, what do we do to work more symbiotically together? It's going to be really interesting. And I want to get into the multi-generational aspect here in a little bit. But, uh, you know, I I think about the, the differences between leadership and employees, like you talked about, and the chain, if you will, that connects leadership employees to ultimately customer experience. Um, you know, that was one thing for us at Disney is we often saw that the the highest performing areas within our theme parks, whether it be, you know, the Emporium or whatever the stores were, um, the highest performing areas on employee engagement scores, the leaders that were rated the highest ultimately were doing the most revenue as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess talk to us a little bit about that, that chain link between those three that you've been able to see over the years. Well, I would say my the best example from my career is really Starbucks. So I worked at, at Starbucks um, in, in the corporate offices in Seattle in the support center. And one of the key things, and I think that's one of the best lessons I ever learned, um, and I was very fortunate to, um, you know, work um, while Howard Schultz was there. And, and his viewpoint was you have to make the customers happy, but you have to make the baristas happy as well. You know, and if you don't have a strong operations, the customers are going to see it. And it's so important to have both of those viewpoints working really strongly together. And I can remember when I worked there, if the if we tested something and the baristas didn't like it, guess what? It didn't go forward, even if the consumer liked it. So we had to make changes. Well, do, you, so, do you have any examples of that? That's that's well, fascinating. I you about that. I'll get myself. In <laughs> Fair um, enough. You need a lot of refinements, you know, based on it, you yeah. know, and you have to take, you know, again. And it doesn't mean something's not going to ever, you know, might make some changes, sure. but it's really important from, I, I'm a firm believer in the fact is, is that for any company, you have to think about the employees. You have to think about your customers or your end users. And if you don't work on them synergistically, then you're, you know, you're, it's going to fall apart. hundred percent. Yeah. And again, we saw that all the time at Disney too, right? Anytime we made decisions, it was always through the three lens uh, for us of, First and foremost, what is this experience going to be like for the employees? What's it going to be like for the guests? And is it going to have those business results? And if one of those three things was off, uh, we probably didn't make the decision to move forward on it. If 
if it was good for the employee and good for the guest, but we were unclear about the business results, we probably went ahead and did it anyway because we knew those business results were going to come. And, and that's that's really key. I mean, anytime I'm developing a plan, it's like, well, how are you evaluating it? It's all about having, you know, if you don't, it's like insight. You have the insight from the from the learnings, and then how do you action against it? But then what's the impact? And you have to understand that impact in anything you do. And if it, the ROI, depending on what the ROI is, but you know, if it's, you know, it could be customer satisfaction, it could be making a percentage of money, whatever that is, it's super important that you're delivering against whatever your goals are. You should never have any initiative without setting a goal um, and, and be able to read it. You know, it's like one of the things, why did we do the study at the Pacers, the first wave? That's our benchmark. So yeah. now we have a benchmark. So as we develop new ideas and we test it with our fans, we'll know, are we making a difference or not? That So that's always been a challenge for me in this customer experience space as we go out and we work with other organizations on helping to enhance customer experience. There's nothing more frustrating than when we have this conversation and they're like, well, our goal is just to get better at customer experience. I'm like, well, what does getting better mean? Um, I don't know. We'll be able to know it when we see it. I'm like, ah, you're probably not going to spend the money that that yeah. you need to to invest in it then yeah i have a customer experience you know i i've worked on customer experience for a very long time and um you know i'm a big believer in like you should have goals every year and what you're trying to do and making sure you're exceeding them and really if there's a problem really closing that loop as quickly as possible because you can make a mistake because everybody makes mistakes but it's how you deal with that mistake in a timely fashion is the most critical component Absolutely. Well, let, let me let me dive into this a little bit because I I think as we we're talking about gaining insights into the employee experience, I, I know there sometimes tends to be a lot of red tape. We work with a lot of college athletic departments, mm-hmm. and a lot of times larger employee engagement surveys get blocked because the bigger university is running some other kind of survey and they don't want to over survey people, and mm-hmm. so people just give up on it. Outside of a kind of a formalized 10, seven minute questionnaire, which you caution, don't go over that, right? Um, Outside of a bigger formalized employee engagement survey, what are some other ways that people can start getting a pulse on their employee experience? Yeah, so I, I've actually done extensive work in this area, again, in my with my past pro, uh, em, employer, where, you know, we did a lot, we did quantitative employee surveys, but then we would also do a couple of other things. For example, we would do roundtables where we bring people in like focus groups to talk over lunch about, you know, what are the issues that they're having and what can we do to make things better? Um, so I think that's a great tool. Um, there's also ways of, um, you know, having an email where people can anonymously put things in. And mm. I think Anonymous is key uh, because one thing that you do find is people are sometimes afraid to give sort of honest survey feedback. And, you know, one of the things is it's really also important to, um, you know, I've also used third parties where I've gone in and done um, a tool with mobile ethnography. So what is that? Yeah, so what, what is that? Oh, your smartphone. We have to be all today where you go in. You recruit people at that particular workplace 
And, you know, they talk about, you know, what the culture is like. It's all about understanding the company culture because the word we ask them, what words would you use to describe that culture? Okay. So I always say when I retire and out of the business world, I'm going to write a book, book about the best and worst places to work. Cause I can tell you right now <laughs> and the best and worst places to go to school um, and really understanding the culture and then what's important to them and what are they looking for? And it's a great tool where you can get, 15 people to really understand that particular company and you go in depth where you're getting like 200 different data points. So there's all, there's a lot of great tools out there today to really get a snapshot because you're right. You don't want to over survey. You don't, you know, you just want to do it, you know, one or two times a year with employees, no more than that. But there are other ways from a, you know, just getting a group of people together and guess what? They want, they love to give feedback and they prefer it actually, if it's from a third party, not from the people that work at that particular company. I, especially depending on the culture that's there yeah. and the trust levels that exist there. That, yeah. that was one weird thing is like when we would go do that, when I was with Disney, because it was Disney, everybody just opened up and like told us their deepest, darkest things. I'm like, I, I don't need to know that much information, but, but sometimes it helps when there's a third party. It is amazing what people will share. Um, and, you know, especially, you know, when we were utilizing the mobile ethnography tool to really understand a company culture at a particular organization or a university, people are willing to share more on a smartphone. I think they feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. They feel anonymous. And also when you provide imagery, we would ask people to provide images of how they're feeling. And that also really helps in diagnose. My favorite thing ever is whenever I do of focus groups is that people do homework and i think the richness of what people give back we used to in my like starbucks what, yeah days, what kind of homework Go ahead. Oh, my starbucks days were the best um talk about your ideal coffee experience my favorite image to this day we were in germany and this designer from bmw was in our focus group and the imagery of him sitting he made he was a beautiful artist and he's sitting um on a beach holding a cup of coffee and to this day i still remember that um and when you did coffee focus groups and when I was working at Hershey's and doing chocolate, it goes in your mind can go wild on what people go to. Um, I'm not going to say this. This is a PG conversation, but um, we can, we can make it PG 13, <laughs> but um, you know, I do think imagery is really important and that really, when you have people pull imagery, um, it kind of really gets the subconscious viewpoint of people, what people are really thinking and feeling. There's a, this is just a sidebar. I, I noticed it on my desk. So there's a great, great book that I'm reading right now. It's called the employee experience advantage. I don't know if you've read it by Jacob. Yeah. Morgan. I think it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's not, um, certainly not rocket science boils it down to pretty, pretty easy talking points, but there's a lot of tactics and strategies in there that if you're listening to this and you're thinking about, Hey, how do I maybe use data as a starting point for my employee experience journey? Um, that, that book might be a good resource for you. Um, well, let's let's talk into this as we kind of go into this third part of our, our podcast is this this multi generational in the workforce and in our uh, in our customer base, if you will. How do you approach now with five generations out there? How do we approach serving experiences to those different people? How do we how do we create and personalize and customize those experiences to those, those different types of people? 
I think you have you have to stay close with you know understanding what people's needs are, and that's the most important thing. Is um, you know you you can't always just go into demographics because you could have a boomer who really mindset is a millennial, and we call that a perennial. So I do think demographics are not the way to go. I'm a I'm an anti demographic person. I'm a psychographic person. I love it. You really want to understand what makes people tick. What what you know what you know looking at different attitudes and behaviors because somebody you know one of the things when you know working in the food industry for a long time you know people love to experiment and try new food well you know what that could be a millennial or could that could be an exer so it you know you can't just bucket people but the biggest difference in terms of um you know, in terms of experimenting with different things, you know, you do have like millennials are more experimental sure. than a boomer. That's an obvious thing. But I do think like all the learnings that we've had pre-COVID could really change. Because yeah. The unemployment rate is so high with Zs and millennials right now. And then you've got alphas who are in high school and in college. I mean, I just think back and you think about all these poor college students and these and students that graduated high school and how they can't have the ceremonies and how all this e-learning, you're not even getting the college experience. That's going to really shape generations. There's so much rich learning that's going to have to be had over the next few years and figure out, you know, what is important to people. Because I do think what's important to people is going to shift somewhat than we saw, you know, last March, you know, even. So it's all about more than ever, it's important to really understand your consumer base your employee base and what's important to them because I, you know, back to the days when everybody worked in the office five days a week, that's, that's not going to happen anymore. Behavior is going to shift from that. You know, we saw before where office spaces were getting smaller and smaller. I I just think that, you know, where people have to come in nine to five, is it going to be a thing of the past? And I think that's going to be interesting to monitor the time as well. Oh, you still have to put in eight hours, though, right? <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's really interesting. I, I want to go back to kind of your not being a demographics person, but being a psychographics person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've talked about this before uh, on the show and different webinars. Okay. It's just kind of the value of creating a really robust customer persona depending on mm-hmm. and multiple of those. <laughs> but looking at the driving thing there, not being how much money they make or how old they are, but really diving into what are, what is that individual person's goals and motivations? What are they trying to achieve in life? What are they trying to do and who are they? Mm-hmm. And then you can build services and products based around those things that better, that better tee into those things. And so, I mean, I guess talk a little bit about the role that goals and motivations play in your study of psychographics with fans. Hugely. I mean, right now, six weeks in, um, I have to admit at the Pacers, uh, that's some of the things that, you know, we want to dig deeper on. You know, we we are fortunate that we do have rich data at the Pacers. Um, so there has been a, a lot of great work done, but more work, you know, I'm very excited to be working on um, where, you know, we're working with different partners to help us with that. But the more we can understand our fans, the better we can be in delivering on what they're looking for, you know. You know, everybody today, you know, before it's about, you know, personalization, you know, I want that personalized experience. I want to customize to my needs from every aspect of, of life, you know? So again, those are things, you know, is that going to be as important uh, as it was a few months ago as it is going forward? 
Hard to say, but this is why it's important to stay in touch with consumers and really understand what's going on with them. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. Um, tell me, if you can, to the extent that you can, tell me a little bit about this cross-functional millennial task force that you led when you were at Hershey. Oh, the- it just sounds fascinating. I have to know more. Oh, it was, uh, <laughs> that's a, yeah, when I was at Hershey's, I worked on a couple of task force. One of them, I was on millennials. And then the second was, was on simple <laughs> ingredients. So millennials at the time were, were people didn't really understand millennials. You got to remember we're, we're not millennial, you know, we were older. So we, we needed to understand, you know, what do we need to do from a marketing perspective? What do we need to do from a social media perspective? So we had the digital team, the marketing team, you know, the, the brand teams really figure out what you know what makes the millennials tick what's important to them because what we found is um, that some of the uh, products skewed a bit older and you also saw a shift also this kind of led into the whole simple ingredients where people didn't want to eat things that were packaged or from a big company you know big companies are bad and how if I can't understand all of the ingredients that are in that label. I don't want to eat it, you know, so it's all of the, you know, smaller kind of boutique type of brands that were excelling where packaged goods weren't doing as well. And so really, I have to give Hershey's a lot of credit on the fact that, you know, I was working on things that were kind of ahead of its time in terms of really working with leadership on, you know, what makes millennials tick? What do we need to do in terms of a product pipeline perspective? And that's kind of led into the whole simple ingredients and a lot of changes that they made to their products to keep clean labels and be really on the forefront in that area. I, I love it. And and to kind of wrap us up there, I, I think that's a great example of if you're going out and you're going to collect this data, you've got to have a plan to use it. And you can't, you don't just go out and survey, don't just go out to do focus groups because you think it's the right thing to do. You've got to create that business case behind it. And that's a great example of the way it changed the way you packaged and created ingredients and different products for the millennials based on your understanding of them. I think that's a great way to kind of round it. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I always say to everyone, you know, whenever you have, it's great to have a stat, but if you don't have an insight from it and then an actionability. I always like to say, whenever I come up with any report, I always say to people, you may not agree with our recommendations, but we're going to go out there based on what we're seeing, based on our information on what we know about the business, what we know about consumer behavior. And I think that's really important when anything you do is what what's what's the action, what's the recommendation, mm-hmm. and then follow through. What changes were made, what was successful, and learn from it and make changes from it. Because the first time you do every, anything, anytime you do any project, not everything's successful, but always go back and look about what's the post-mortem on it. What could you have done differently? How do you build off it in the future? Beautiful. And so I, let me, I'm going to kind of wrap us up here, but I have a question that's going to be a little weird right now, but I think our, our listeners will really want to hear this. So a lot of budgets are frozen and typically I'm a big advocate for one, you should have somebody in-house that's looking at data and has this data, some an ability to analyze data full time. Like that's a great person to have on your team or a team of people that are doing that. If you can't do that, bring in an outside third party to, to do some of those things. But right now, a lot of budgets are frozen and I think people are being asked to do more with less. So if if you've got somebody on your team, if there's somebody on a, a team right now um, that's looking to kind of pick up this skill set a little bit more, what are some resources you might recommend to an individual listening to, to say, hey, how can I boost my data analytics skills? 
Well, I would definitely, you know, look at classes online um, in terms yeah. of, you know, and, there, you know, right now there's a lot of free things out there. there are. A lot of, you know, ways that you can just look at past surveys online, you know, so one of the things we did for the work that we did and understanding, you know, the fans at, uh, with the Pacers, we did it all in-house. So we wrote the question ourselves, we programmed it, we analyzed it, we conducted the focus groups ourselves and analyzed all of it. You know, and I do think, you know, because budgets are tight, so we had to do everything ourselves and that's the way it's going to be for a little bit. But I think, you know, I think it's important to have the skill set to analyze the information yourself, because if you can't analyze it yourself, how do you know how to act upon it? So, and get close to your consumer. Because one of the things that, um, I really like is being touching and feeling the consumer. If I can't touch and feel, how do I know how to do my job and to guide guide decision making and help help the organization make the right decisions? You know, so I think it's really important for all those market researchers out there is to hone your skills and really, you know, do it yourself. And that is a big trend out there. And it has been for quite a bit of time is where, you know, where people have to, you know, dig deep and hire people that really understand how to analyze information. And in the end of the day, it's much cheaper than outsourcing it. Completely. Especially yeah. when you start to say, I can, we, we can now scale this now. It's not, we're exactly. not limited to one survey a year. And, and I just want to say, you know, you do need to hire outside third party. There's a great market yeah. research vendors for particular product projects, but for right now, and if you're talking to your fan base and you have, you know, you can contact them, use it. And one of the things that we've been doing is we've been sharing our questionnaire and discussion guides that we've been doing for this. So if anyone wants to reach out to me, you know, we're very open to, you know, helping because we do think that it's the collective good that's going to help all of us succeed in the long term. So it's important that we all work together. Um, two final things before we close. Uh, obviously, go online, Google your face off until you find some good courses on it. Any books that you might recommend that have helped shape your thinking um, as to as to everything we've been talking about? The way I have learned is by observing. I'm a big believer and I ask a lot of questions. So I curiosity. Very, I, when I interview people, the number one goal, I, I think a successful consumer research person is somebody who's curious. A day I don't learn something every day is a bad day. So, and I, I take that into everything I do. So I think it's really important the way I've self-taught myself. I've been very fortunate starting off in my career at Ogilvy and Mather, where, you know, I, I had some great people that helped train me in how to write questionnaires. And it's all about, you know, I just, I reach out to people all the time and ask for feedback. People are willing to help each other. And I think that's even more so today than ever before. Couldn't agree more. Well, Jill, where can people reach you or follow along your journey um, if, if you'd like to put that information out there? Well, you can go to my LinkedIn, Jill Marchek, or my email address at the Pacers is jmarchek at pacers.com. Perfect. Jill, thank you so much for spending so much time here. Uh, this has been a, a wonderful last 45 minutes and look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jill. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, 
We're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.